it's much easier to do that job if you have a consistent foreign policy. This is not a one-country trade deal. This is a three-country trade deal. And I happened to be serving in Canada when we were encouraging the Canadians to adopt NAFTA. And it was a hard, hard fight from all sides. It's a minor concession, but it indicates that Macron may be a fairly shrewd reader of character oh, and yeah. may understand that uh, President Trump, for all his money, is a cheap date. This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Cecile Shea, and today we're discussing Iran's growing influence in the Middle East and beyond, President Trump's relationship with Europe, and the NAFTA negotiations and Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau's recent end round. I'm here with Phil Levy, Senior Fellow on the Global Economy at the Council. Welcome back, Phil. Hello. Also joining us is Richard Longworth, Distinguished Fellow for Global Cities at the Council and recognizable to readers of the Chicago Tribune and UPI as R.C. Longworth, foreign correspondent and two-time Pulitzer Prize runner-up. Welcome back, Dick. Thank you, Cecile. So, Cecile, I wanted to jump in here because we were talking about something last week. Last week, when we left off, President Trump and President Putin had had a meeting. They had struck some sort of deal about Israel and the Middle East and Syria. We weren't entirely sure what was in that deal. It was a little worrisome because we didn't because the right people weren't necessarily in the room. But this week we found out a little bit more about what might have been problematic with that deal. What, what did we figure out on all this? Well, one of the questions last week was to what degree the Israelis had been in conversation with the American negotiators. It turns out that they were in conversation with the American negotiators, including a very high-level phone call between Prime Minister Netanyahu and Secretary of State Tillerson. But in the end, the U.S. did not give the Israelis anything that they were asking for in terms of the ceasefire. So they're quite upset. And in this case, they they have legitimate reason to be upset. So maybe to how, under- how unusual is that? Do we usually give the Israelis what they ask for? Well, they had a legitimate request this time. And so the question is, and this goes back to our discussion last time, um, was this something that we were never going to include? And I should say what it was. The uh, Israelis were asking for a specific mention in this ceasefire agreement that the parties, meaning the Jordanians, the Russians, and the Americans, would work to keep Iranian influence out of the ceasefire area. So it's very important to the Israelis. We're talking about southwestern Syria, which is near the Israeli border. It was a legitimate and, and realistic request, particularly given the fact that Iran is supporting the government of President Assad, and so are the Russians. So if you look at it from the Israeli standpoint, the Russians and the Iranians are on the same side, and that would concern Israel very much. Okay. Well, does uh, Israel fear an active Iranian incursion into there, or uh, would the Iranians be more likely to use Hezbollah or one of their uh, clients? Yeah, so they're more worried about influence along the border than they are actual Iranian incursion at this time, and it's a serious concern. There was an excellent New York Times article over the weekend, quite a long one, about the growing Um, influence of Iran in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, and in particular in Iraq. And this is something we've known about for a long time. I was in Pakistan and Afghanistan 10 years ago or so, and, and we could see the Iranian influence spreading. But we had so many other fires to put out, it wasn't something that we were paying attention to. Now, I'm not as familiar with the situation in Iraq, but I suspect that the same thing has happened there. We, it's a large country. We had so many other things to worry about. We have been fighting the Islamic State. 
And in the meantime, Iranian influence has spread to an astounding degree, according to this New York Times reporting. And one result of that influence is that the Iranian government and the Iranian Revolutionary Guard in particular have very good road access now between Iran and into Syria and from Syria to Lebanon. So fighters that Iran is going to train are able to come from Syria, travel along this road, go into Iran, receive training, and then return to Syria. It gives Iran a much easier route to being able to train and equip Hezbollah in Lebanon. And you'll recall Hezbollah has been at war with Israel on and off a number of times for the last 13 years. So it's a serious problem. But now Israel, throughout the whole six years of the Syrian war, Israel has really made a point of not getting caught in the quagmire there. It's kept it at arm's length. What could Israel do about this now? How is it likely to react? Well, that's really a problem for Israel because it has very limited um, ways to affect the situation of Iranian insurgency. They may have some secret methods, as they have used before in terms of cyber intrusions. But the the Israeli army can't just march into Iraq and shut down these roads. They really need cooperation from their closest friend and ally, the United States. And they need somehow to convince the Putin government to rein in Iran. There's a question, though, about which is the stronger country in terms of Assad right now. Is it Russia? And Moscow is a long way, after all, from Damascus. Or is it Iran, which has millions of soldiers right next door? And so one of the challenges facing Putin may be that even if he wanted to slow down Iranian influence into that area, he may not be able to, because it's in Assad's best interest to be nice to the Iranians. So so where is the Trump administration on Iran in all this? We, they've inherited what I think of as the uh, cognitive dissonance nuclear deal, where on the one hand, we'll say the Iranians are behaving well, and on the other, we'll say they're not behaving well. Um, they just certified them as behaving all right this week. Where, How are they approaching the Iranian issue? Well, it's an interesting question. Of course, uh, President Trump was very vocal during the campaign saying that he would abrogate the deal, that he thought it was a terrible deal. Once every 90 days, he is required to certify to Congress that Iran is holding up its end of the nuclear deal. And On Monday, President Trump, for the second time in his administration, did that certification extremely reluctantly. Um, Sean Spicer had to postpone the press conference like three times because the president kept changing his mind. What apparently eventually um, happened is the president agreed as long as the next day a different set of sanctions would be announced on Iran. And that is exactly what happened. The Secretary of the Treasury Um, the next day on Tuesday, announced sanctions against both Iran and a number of other entities that the United States has stated are supporting Iran's um, ballistic missile program. So for now, that seems to have appeased the president, but he clearly is very uncomfortable with this agreement, despite the fact that his entire foreign policy team believes that, A, it has worked, and it has worked. There is no question at all that Iran has followed through on its promises to destroy centrifuges, to decrease its stockpile of fissile material by 90 percent, and to allow in inspectors for a very intrusive inspection regime. So while it is true that Iran is anything but a benign presence in the Middle East and beyond, I mean, it is a troubling presence. At least it is further away from being a nuclear-armed troubling presence, which was the goal of the nuclear deal. In addition, this is something that not only the U.S. but our European allies worked really, really hard on. 
So so to back out now would cause President Trump even more problems with the Canadians and with the other countries that worked so hard on this deal. So then circling back to where we started, how do we understand the deal that was struck over Syria? Why, and why would we, was it a deliberate rejection of the Israeli um, position? Was it inadvertent? Was it just failure to win something from Putin? What's your best guess? It seems that the president in particular and some of the people around him have been, A, really desperate to show some kind of improvement in relations with President Putin, and this became the only deliverable from the U.S. side out of the G20 summit at the end of the day. Um, And secondly, there is a real desire to ratchet down the killing and the violence in Syria. And while none of the previous ceasefires is held, there's always the hope that this one will hold. And perhaps if it holds long enough to alleviate some of the suffering there, the parties can then come back to the table and say, okay, now what are we going to do about Iranian influence in Syria? Because this is not helping the region any. Certainly the Jordanians do not want Iranian influence in Syria. Um, so it's going to take a concerted effort to to now deal with this with this issue and it's larger than it's larger than the question of iran in syria it's really iran in iraq it is iran in afghanistan and it is whether or not the us can make any progress on working with iran on these difficult questions without having diplomatic relations with the country. And I don't think it's possible. We've had diplomatic relations with a whole host of countries with whom we have fraught relationships. So we need to figure out a way to start talking to a large and powerful and historically rich and deep and proud country that is Iran. The Iranian foreign minister said today that while he spoke informally with John Kerry, Um, President Obama's Secretary of State on a fairly frequent frequent basis. He has not spoken a single time with Secretary Tillerson. Not not to be facetious, but the last time we had an embassy there that was well-staffed, it didn't end so well for a lot of Foreign Service officers. Uh, And are they st- are they chanting different things in the streets that now give us more assurance? Or well, we won't know unless we enter into realistic conversations with the government of Iran on what it would take to reopen our embassy. Right now, they don't want us there either. I mean, it's a two-way street. We are not going to open an embassy in Tehran tomorrow. But we at least need to be talking to them. It's always better to talk to people and to try to understand um, how they view the region than just to make assumptions. And I realize that sounds like a classic Foreign Service officer thing to say, (laughs) but understanding people will always get you further than not understanding people. And we have to remember that the embassy was seized in 1979, 30 years ago. It's been a while. In the midst of a revolution. Iran now is a fairly stable demi-dictatorship that is not likely to let things get out of hand that way. What happened in 1979 is not a good excuse to keep what you've been talking about, normal diplomatic relations that let us get on with it. That's a very good point. Let me then, since you were taking this sort of classic foreign service officer position, you were one until recently, what do you think the reaction would be of a foreign service officer being posted to Tehran now? So my goal throughout my entire career was to be the first deputy chief of mission back to Tehran. And I was not alone in that. I think there are 
thousands, there's only 5,000 Foreign Service officers in the first place. And my guess is that you would have 4,999 lining up to go back to Iran. And they would want to be there for three reasons. First of all, they realize that the country is the linchpin right now for bringing some kind of quiet to the Middle East. Secondly, they realize that we both share a lot in common. We're both countries that respect religion, we respect education, we respect families. Um, we should we should be working together and not working against each other this way. And thirdly, I think people are desperate to go back there because it is a fascinating place and it's a place Americans should be able to visit also. And I think a lot of Americans would like to visit. And fourth, diplomats and journalists are somewhat the same. And then they're both a little nuts. They get off on being <laughs> where the action is and where the danger is. And, right? and we should point out, I mean, it's only fair to point out that they have um, that the government of Iran has sentenced yet another American to a lengthy prison term for espionage under very questionable circumstances. This is a graduate student a graduate doing research, right? That's right. And so I am not under any illusions about the problems of going back into this country, but we cannot continue with the status quo ante. I mean, my goodness, I was a freshman in college when the embassy pulled out, our, and now I'm a retired diplomat. That says something. Yeah, yes, it does. Um, two of the most hostile places in the world to the United States are two places where we don't have diplomatic representation, North Korea and uh, Iran. Um, you know, this, not having diplomatic representation doesn't seem to be doing as much good. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think talking to people is always better than not talking sure. to people. Now, speaking of talking to people and not talking to people, um, the president was in France last week for Bastille Day. He seemed to enjoy his visit very, very much. Is this, is this a sign that relations with Europe are improving? That, the, that President Trump is rethinking how he views kind of traditional old Europe and our NATO allies there? I, um, it's a little bit like the uh, ceasefire agreement with Russia. Let's wait and see if it lasts. <laughs> uh, things with Trump tend to be a little impermanent. But taking a face value, yes, I think he is realizing that uh, he's got to deal with the Europeans. More to the point, I think the Europeans, after their original shock at the election, are realizing they have to deal with him. He is the president of the most powerful country in the world. Um, I'm reminded back during the second Bush administration when we were building up to the war in Iraq. And Tony Blair, then the prime minister of Great Britain, went along with Bush on this um, to the consternation of many people in Britain who hotly opposed this. <clears throat> and Blair's uh, people explained to me, they said that Blair had his own agenda. A lot of it had to do with uh, poverty programs in Africa, uh, various Asian programs, things like that, that he simply could not get done unless the United States helped. The United States didn't have to take the lead, but the United States then as now was essential to anything that Blair wanted to do. So he, to his eventual sorrow, uh, went along with the Iraq invasion just to make sure that Bush would back him on these other projects, which, as a matter of fact, Bush in the end didn't do very much. But I think uh, Macron and other Europeans are seeing that there's things that they need to do in the world, uh, projects that they have that you can't get done if... Um, Certainly, if the United States is against you, but uh, probably unless the United States is along, even in a passive way. So they have realized they have to work with Trump, and they're seeking some sort of a motive for Vendi here. 
Well, it, it's an interesting analogy. I think where you have a difference is going along with the U.S. for the Iraq war really required a major commitment. Perhaps the particular savvy of President Macron in this case was it required having a nice dinner in the Eiffel Tower and having, you know, President and Mrs. Trump along as you reviewed troops and, and watched a parade, which I think for most leaders, that's a relatively minor concession. It's a minor concession, but it indicates that Macron may be a fairly shrewd reader of character oh, yeah. and may understand that uh, President Trump, for all his money, is a cheap date. Well, Macron did apparently say over the weekend that his concern is that if America's traditional allies cannot find a way to make President Trump feel comfortable with them, that he will continue visiting and cozying up to countries that, because they are dictatorships or semi-dictatorships, are able very easily to make President Trump feel comfortable, such as President Trump's visit to Warsaw when the leader um, of Poland bust in pro-Trump demonstrators and made sure that the anti-Trump demonstrators stayed far away, or President Trump's visit to Saudi Arabia when they projected a six or eight story image of President Trump's face up on the side of the hotel. So those are not things that Angela Merkel is going to be able to do in a democracy. So the challenge for Merkel and for May and Britain and for Macron is to find ways to make President Trump feel comfortable and feel accepted so that he doesn't then turn to some of these more troubling Isn't this amazing in a way we are now six months almost to the day into the Trump administration and we don't have a clear reading yet. He was going to deep six the Iran deal on day one. That hasn't happened. He's just given the certification that you talked about. Uh, Putin was his pal. Now we're not quite so sure, but still he's making a ceasefire with Putin that may or may not stick. And in the meantime, um, NATO, which was a dead duck on day one, has now been seen as an asset, and Article 5 uh, is, is back in business. Things change so much, and there's no assurance yet that any of this is going to last. And there is no overall concept that I can see of, of, a, of a foreign policy taking shape here, of a principal foreign policy that is predictable. Could any, either of you predict with any assurance what this administration is going to do tomorrow or within the next week? Or the problem is there seems to be multiple foreign policies. So yeah, what his cabinet right. wants is what not necessarily what President Trump wants, and that includes on trade, it does. where we keep hearing multiple um, views coming out of this administration, which must be very confusing to our allies. So well, can think, you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll sort of let me take on what, what Dick said a bit. Um, I think that's right. I think you have multiple foreign policies. I think you have had a shunning of the traditional expertise with the State Department. You have a disconnect now where you have a secretary and a deputy and then almost no or maybe no political appointees all the way down through the, the ranks, which would normally be staffed with um, with people who know these regions and these topics very, very well. And so you're, and you're seeing a steep learning curve. And so it's a, a very steep learning curve. And in many ways, it's not even a desire to converge upon a, a certain foreign policy. That I think there's some reveling in having the factions go at each other and letting one be up one day and the other up the next. And I think you're right. We've seen this in trade as well. And we saw in April, you had an episode where the president, by all reports, came very, very close to withdrawing the U.S. from the North American Free Trade Agreement, from NAFTA. Um, 
He got a very quick education from people like his agriculture secretary and his commerce secretary of just which U.S. interests were at stake if one were to do that. Um, and so there was a pullback from it. Um, normally, we don't observe that kind of learning going on in public. Usually, it goes on with briefings behind closed doors, and you're not um, working this out in real time quite the same way. Um, but we've, but we have seen this with NAFTA. It, there's even been learning about process. I think President Trump came into office with NAFTA, saying, "I'm going to make deep, radical changes. I'm going to renegotiate the whole agreement. Here's my guy, Wilbur Ross." He's going to do it for me. And patiently, the lead congressional committees explained to him, that's very nice. Welcome, Mr. President. Um, we have laws that govern these things. There's trade promotion authority from 2015. So you can do whatever you like as long as it's those objectives that are laid out in the law. And by the way, it's nice that you're so fond of your commerce secretary, but the law says it will be the U.S. trade representative who will do these things, who happens to have a tight relationship to Congress and reports to all the right committees in Congress. And I know you'd like to race ahead, but take another look at the law and you'll notice that, no, you have to do certain things. And in fact, this week, we sort of saw another step in that process. So the president wanted to charge right in on NAFTA renegotiation. What happened instead was had to wait until the new U.S. trade rep was confirmed, Lighthizer. Then the um, they had to file and Lighthizer had to file the the intent to renegotiate NAFTA. They did that in mid May. That started. Do a, they file that with Congress or do they file that with the other two NAFTA with, members? Well, they notify the other two NAFTA members, but it's with Congress. They're telling Congress what their intent is for a trade negotiation. That starts a ninety day clock, which is why we have NAFTA renegotiations set to commence on August sixteenth, and. There was a requirement there that 30 days before those negotiations commenced, the administration would come out in public and say, what are your negotiating objectives? And so that was the document that dropped this week, about a 12-page document where they said, this is what we intend to do. So what are our negotiating objectives? They're all over the map. It's, um, there's some classic uh, Trump trade critic rhetoric in there. There's railing about people who lost jobs because of the trade agreement. There's talk of fixing trade deficits. There's talk about getting serious about currency manipulation. But then there's also a bunch of stuff which is fairly standard. It looks just like the TPP, that talking about things like state-owned enterprises and digital trade and the wonderful innovation they would exhibit in, in taking these things on, conveniently ignoring the fact that they actually were negotiated under President Obama as part of the TPP. Um, so then there's some very practical things. It's notable that some of the things that had looked most aggressive in earlier rhetoric were gone. So right after declaring that something would be done about trade deficits, there are sections that say it is a goal of the United States to preserve duty-free trade in goods and duty-free trade in services. So no more 35% tariffs just slapped on, on Mexico. Um, it's interesting. I think what President Trump and his administration have to do with this is they have a whole bunch of constituencies that they have to try to please. And those constituencies do not agree with each other. So you've got um, the critics who got very enthused about his attacks on NAFTA. You've got the business community and uh, long a sort of main stanchion of the Republican Party. You've got the agriculture 
community, which predominates in a lot of those red states on the map. Um, and then you've got to sort of deal with congressional politics. Who's going to support you in Congress? It's not terribly likely that the president's going to be getting many Democratic votes in support of his initiatives. So what the approach that they took in this particular document was put something in there for almost everyone okay. and let them find it. I don't know whether they have the votes or their political backing, but do they have the horses to get this done? The shortage of, of sheer personnel, say in the State Department, is very well known. Do either Wilbur Ross or Lighthizer have the second and third and fourth in command, the teams available and the expertise at their hands to even begin these negotiations? Short answer, no, they don't. I mean, and you're quite right that while the people you see on TV tend to be the secretary and so forth, the people who are often staffing these discussions and teeing everything up so that it can be concluded in a ministerial summit, those are those positions farther down below. And you need political appointees who are able to sort of calculate what are the trade-offs. Now, this comes back to something we were talking about earlier. If you are a, Even if you are a political appointee, so we're being hypothetical here since they don't have these people in a lot of these positions, it's much easier to do that job if you have a consistent foreign policy where you can puzzle it out and you know which kind of trade-offs are going to work back in Washington and which won't work back in Washington. That would be a pretty thankless task in this administration because you don't, just as we were saying, you don't have that consistency. So if you're trying to figure out which trade-offs can I make, it's not easy. You have the expertise at the bureaucracy, the permanent bureaucracy lower down, but they need political guidance to exercise this expertise. Without that political guidance, nothing happens. That's right. So you, you absolutely have the people who can tell you, here's the language you might use, here's how this might work. But then when it comes right down to it and somebody says, we can get this concession that will help this one, you know, the banking sector, but we have to give up something that you know the automotive sector isn't going to like, are you willing to make that trade? Now, usually that's the kind of thing that would go to someone like Lighthizer or you know, to very high levels, but at lesser versions of that, you don't quite have the people. That, the, so that you're absolutely right, the people are one big obstacle. The other big obstacle that I don't think they've factored in is the timing, and the timing just doesn't work for them. And they have... The, let's suppose, let's just imagine that despite this lack of people, Everything goes brilliantly, and it gets to be Christmas Eve, and they wrap up these negotiations, which relieves the Mexicans because they're about to head into a presidential campaign, so they're happy. What happens? If your conception of this is that it's like some real estate deal, then a couple weeks later you submit it to a board and it all passes and you're done. That's not what happens with trade deals. What happens with trade deals is you wrap everything up on Christmas Eve, and then you notify the Congress and you say, I intend to sign this deal, I think it's 90 days from now. And then when you have the actual language of the deal, sort of 90 days later, you submit something to the International Trade Commission and you say, I'd like you to study this and issue a report on what this will do to the United States. And none of the committees advance their work until that has taken place and they have months to do their work. And then you do a statement of administrative action. What ends up happening? You don't even commence the congressional review until you are in the middle of the following summer. And lo and behold, where have you found yourself? 
election. Right, in the middle year. of a midterm election campaign, and you're pushing NAFTA 2.0 in the middle of a president, uh, not a presidential, you're pushing NAFTA 2.0 in the middle of a congressional election campaign. And what trade economists have long thought that pushing controversial deals like this in the middle of an election campaign is a bad idea. And there was nothing last year that disabused us of that notion. So we saw that with the TPP. Remember, by the way, if you want an example of this timeline, the Obama administration tried to finish the TPP in July of 2015. They failed. They heard the clock ticking, but they couldn't get it done. They finally got it done in early October, and they ran out of time for exactly this reason. You got the ITC report in about May, and then there it was, right in the middle of the election campaign. Everybody lined up against it, and you couldn't move it through. Phil, it's worth remembering, it's not just the, this is not a one country trade deal. This is a three country trade deal. And I happened to be serving in Canada when we were encouraging the Canadians to adopt NAFTA. And it was a hard, hard fight from all sides. And there's nothing to indicate that this wouldn't cause controversy in Canada and Mexico again. Beyond that, we're not going to be the only people with proposals, I assume. Aren't the Canadians and the Mexicans going to come to us and demand things that we might not be too happy about? They will, although we've done a lot of the liberalization, so a lot of this is the modernization. But your, your point is very well taken. And in fact, there was a red flag in the thing that was put out yesterday because some of the stuff on dispute resolution and the so called Chapter 19, that's something that Canada has identified as they will not allow that to be removed. But that was one of the U.S. objectives. So you're quite right. This is not something where Canada or Mexico are going to just sit idly back. Mexico, uh, with their own politics, heading into a presidential election where you have a staunch critic of of NAFTA, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, who is um, likely to be pushing things. That's one reason why when I say get this done by Christmas, that wasn't purely arbitrary. This has been a strong Mexican desire not to have ongoing negotiations during their presidential campaign leading up to the summer presidential election in 2018 in Mexico. But unless you get rid of this Article 19, this dispute mechanism, <coughs> dispute settlement mechanism, can you? aren't you uh, virtually inviting a huge backlash from environmental and labor groups here in the United States? They, well, hate, they hate it. They do. And, and environmental groups, labor groups, and a lot of Trump's constituents, that essentially the fast version, the way you could get this done quickly, even despite not having, despite the sort of lack of people, is you could cut and paste a bit from TPP, where they did these things. You had Canada and Mexico at the table. You could take the agreed upon language. But here we get back to your critique, which is exactly right, which is that's a tough marketing job, that you spent the whole presidential campaign telling people that the only thing more awful than NAFTA was the TPP. But now here they are blended together. Aren't you happy? So TPP is back with us. But we just cut the Asians out and are applying it to Mexico and Canada. That's right. That's right. TPP was was opposed as a symbol of all the things that people sort of disliked about modernization, rather than because people had actually looked at the text and done any close analysis of what it did for us. So they opposed the symbol, killed the agreement, and now we're left saying, but wait a second, it'd be really useful to have a lot of these features. We should have agreements on state-owned enterprises and on digital commerce. And they had sort of looked overlooked the fact that those were there in the TPP. All right. So... A year from now, is there still going to be a NAFTA? Is the U.S. still going to be participating in NAFTA? Yeah. Normally, I would give you a quick positive answer on this. With the Trump administration, you don't know. 
um, that he has said, he is, unless I get a quick, satisfactory renegotiation, I reserve the right to withdraw from these things. Given how close he came in April, that sounds credible. Um, I think it would be a foolish thing to do, but it's not something we can rule out. I, I don't think that we are going to have a year from now a concluded agreement passed by the U.S. Congress. So if that's his criterion, he's going to have to decide whether he meant it. What would that mean? If we were to pull out from NAFTA, is there a process in the agreement? Would we just be abrogating the agreement? It could cause economic calamity, it seems like, in all three countries. There is a clause in the agreement that talks about what happens if countries want to withdraw. They basically just need to give six months notice. Now, then the question is, what does that, as you say, what does it mean to withdraw? Um, And there, we don't have a lot of precedent for this. You could say we go back to not the special tariffs we set on each other, but the WTO bound tariffs, the so-called ceilings that you put at the WTO. Well, the U.S. average tariffs on Mexico pre-NAFTA were 3%. So are we going to bounce back to that? Mexican, Mexican bound tariffs, by the way, are much higher on the U.S. So if you did have a reciprocal withdrawal back to those WTO levels, this would be a very small U.S. tariff increase and quite a large Mexican tariff increase. But for 20 years now, you have had uh, NAFTA <clears throat> governing relations, uh, trade relations between the United States, Mexico, and Canada. It is built into our economy. Isn't this sort of the economic equivalent of Obamacare that the Republicans and Trump may hate it, but getting rid of it is, by this stage, simply too complicated? It it's a fact of life that cannot be pulled up by the roots. You're just goading me with that Obamacare analogy. But, <laughs> but, you're, but I, as, as a general point that it is deeply woven in, I will, I will completely accept that if we were to try to change this, it's, it is built in and it would be damaging. That was exactly the outcry that came in April when this was attempted, was that you had the, a lot of the manufacturing sector, a lot of the agricultural sector say, this would be disastrous don't do it. And in fact, even some of the changes that the the more minor changes that the Trump administration listed as objectives, like tweaking rules of origin, you get a lot of reluctance from even the auto companies on this because they are built around these rules. They they have invested around these rules and made long-standing business decisions. And so changes um, can be very problematic for them. So, yes, that's, you would be facing that same kind of pushback. We'll have to see um, how, how that plays out. And we should also say that it's not just companies and governments that would be affected. It's actual people. Of course. It's people buying automobiles. It's people buying Blackberries at the grocery store. It's people bringing in workers from Canada or from Mexico because there are immigration provisions as part of NAFTA. So it would be profoundly in some ways painful and in every way consequential to almost every person in this country. NAFTA has had a huge impact on the immigration flows from Mexico into the United States. Getting rid of NAFTA would exacerbate that, to say the least. So I will see your point about consumers, and I will see your point about immigration, and I will raise you to say, and there's a foreign policy aspect to this, which is so both your points I completely agree with, and then on the foreign policy front, a lot of what the U.S. got was a stable and secure Mexico that was closely allied with the United States. And if you were to have a a Mexico that was not closely allied with the United States, the U.S. would find itself really looking back on the good old days, I think, because if, if you were getting an uncooperative partner on our southern border, 
that would be very, very problematic. And on that note, we are reminded why global issues are so important to all of us. Thank you for turning into this episode of Deep Dish on Global Affairs. Please note that the opinions you heard today are those of the people who express them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. If you liked the show, please share it with others who may enjoy it. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs wherever you listen to podcasts and on the Council's website at thechicagocouncil.org. Dick Longworth, Phil Levy, thank you very much for your contributions today. Deep Dish on Global Affairs is produced by Evan Fazio. Our editing intern is Grant Whitaker. I'm Cecile Shea. We'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish.